cats. I can't escape them. That's my... It's some punishment for me. I don't know what I did in a past life, you know? <laughs> I must have been like some weird Slavic peasant who, who got his kicks by, you know, stuffing cats in a bag and drowning them <laughs> in a river while I drank homemade vodka, you know? I think that happens in... Um... In a Jan Troel movie. <laughs> Wouldn't surprise me. A kid, like, stuffs a bag full of cats and, like, tosses it in the river. Or maybe he's forced to. I can't remember what... It's so weird. It's probably been in a few, you know, weird European filmmakers' uh, yeah. movies. Yeah. Tales of their youth in the countryside. Yeah. Killing cats in bags. Didn't you have that funny encounter at SIF with Jan Troel? Yeah, we like complimented his film and said that we thought it was cool and we had seen some of his other work. And then he was like flustered and didn't really know how to react. And it was the next day that his daughter sought us out in the hallways of the AMC River East. And she's like, my father is very sick. <laughs> and he, he didn't have it in him to come and tell you this, but he didn't know that young people had seen his films. And he just wanted to say thank you for you. You made his day complimenting his work and that's when we looked up and he like waved behind the <laughs> the film festival logo he's like hiding what a nice story <laughs> poor guy the policeman isn't there to create disorder the policeman is there to preserve disorder gentlemen get the thing straight once and for all we clear the streets along this route deploy our men and create an impassable barrier a gauntlet if you will he will have a chance i challenge you to a duel It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, folks, and welcome to another episode of The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Andrew Stasulis, and I'm joined here today with... Ryan Saunders. And... Alex a returning... Sherman. Just a <laughs> I'll wait for the cue. Yeah. And a returning guest to our podcast, Alex Sherman. For those who don't know, The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of the hosts selects a topic and the other two hosts are tasked with bringing films to the table, to the Gauntlet studios that meet the topic, address the topic, challenge the topic, buck up against the topic, right? And uh, listeners uh, from last week, you might have heard that Eric Marsh, our our beloved co-host, is currently out on assignment. So Alex is in uh, graciously, gracefully filling in for for Eric this week. And, and because uh, Marsh is is gone. He's he's away. He's out of town. I had the idea for a a, a topic that kind of plays with that absence. You know, Marsh is uh, you know kind of uh, you know mom and dad at times, and I mean that in the best way possible. So I thought the topic should be no parents. No rules, you know, when mom and dad are out of town, you like to cut loose, you know, the authority figure has stepped away, and not that Eric is a, 
a brutal dictator, an authority figure, but, you know, it's summertime, and I thought, you know, this is a great way to kind of have a, have a little party, you know, cut loose a bit. You know, when the cat's away, the mice will play. So I <laughs> tasked the boys with uh, bringing films that play with the idea of no parents... No rules. I wanted the boys to to bring me movies about, you know, kids cutting loose when the authority figures step away, you know, when they, they you know, maybe the parents go out of town for the weekend. That's a great opportunity to, to throw the kegger, the big bash with all your friends. Party vibe, you know, that, that anti-authoritarian party vibe. And, um, boy, I got to say... Uh, <laughs> You know, maybe maybe I, I I really should have stressed the 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 party element here because uh, the boys, well, they 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 brought films that 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 sort of address the topic, uh, but not not at all in the way that I was expecting. And uh, Ryan, particularly, I don't want to get too much into it right now. You're going to introduce your film, but. Uh, you, you've got some things to answer for this week. That's for damn sure. So without further ado, let's get into it. Let's have a wild, wild time here on the gauntlet. No parents, no rules. So Ryan, why don't you tell us about the film that you brought to the table? Well, I'll certainly concede that the film I picked didn't, necessarily live up to my expectations of how I envisioned it. And that's always a bit of a danger when I'm picking something I haven't seen before, which is something I, I do do quite often on the podcast. And I would say in the past, it's, it's certainly worked out in my favor. Uh, but this time around, I think, you know, sometimes I'll buck up against the topic. And I think this one maybe did a little bit too much, but I will still, you know, defend the, the film itself for having inklings of what I was looking for. And so the film I chose is one I've been wanting to see for quite a while, and it was on my mind again because last week we had talked about hybrid documentaries. And this is a film that comes from Iran from 1998 called The Apple, which is directed by the daughter of a filmmaker we've featured on the podcast before, Mohsen Makhmobaf. This is directed by his daughter, Samira Makhmobaf. The Apple is, as I mentioned, a hybrid documentary of sorts. The film's genesis was extremely rapid, as was its production. When Samira Makhmobaf had read in the news about the story concerning two young girls who had been imprisoned by their family for their entire lives, their entire 11 years. It became national news in Iran, and the girls were sort of grabbed hold by welfare in, in Iran, and they, they were being taken care of and assessed as to whether they should be returned to their family. And Samira heard the news of this, and immediately she thought, I need to start filming. And the film itself was completed within 11 days. It's an extremely tight production that was very, very fast. And Samira herself was only 17 when she began production on the film, which is another like remarkable element of it. And, you know, one thing I think we'll talk about with this film is naturally there are many ethical questions that are raised uh, as to this film's production, 
was Samira a bit of an opportunist here, kind of diving in with a camera, pointing it at all these people? But I do think it's important to consider maybe that, you know, she was 17 when she made it. And, you know, we do have the film, so we sort of just have to deal with it with what we have. And the reason I had chosen the film was because, again, I had mentioned I had wanted to see it for a while. And my understanding of it was that Samira, her involvement with the production, she arrived and with the welfare woman had sort of reversed the situation. They had imprisoned the father within the home. They had locked him in the home and they let the girls out to experience the world for the very first time out on the streets. The two young girls in the apple had only ever lived within the confines of the home. They had received no education. They weren't properly fed. And just overall health concerns were pretty uh, severe. To, to say the least, and they had a very limited exposure to the outside world, just sort of barely seeing the sun through the bars. And, you know, it takes a little while to get there. But when they do go out, when they finally have their no parents, no rules, and they are experiencing the world for themselves for the first time, there are lots of moments of grace and beauty, and it is fascinating. Again, as I said, I, I thought that, you know, the majority of the film would then be out and about, tearing it up, learning about the world, experiencing it for themselves. But Samira really does focus a lot on the authority figures in this film, and we spend a lot of time with the parents. There is something very cathartic about their escape from this home and the, the, that brief exposure of no parents, no rules. And I think it does, you know, engage with it in an interesting way. Um, but yeah, I, you know, it is a film that was co-written by her father, um, who I think certainly had a guiding hand stylistically with the production. Um, but she does sort of branch out and it feels like an independent spirit was, was working on this film for, for better or worse. Because I think, again, there are some questions as, as to be raised as to, you know, what was, what was gained through pointing a camera at these two young girls. Um, it's a film that was really beloved when it came out. It has a very established reputation, and it's interesting reading some of the writing on the film at the time, and uh, I think thinking about how this film might be received in 2022 if it was made now. I think the critical consensus would be radically different. Uh, yeah, I'm excited to hear, hear how you both reacted with your experience with it. But I, I think I'll just leave it at that for now. And that's The Apple from 1998. Thank you, Ryan. Spoken like a man backpedaling defensively. Thank you so much <laughs> for this. And yeah, I'm excited to talk about it as well. Uh, now, Sherman, last time you stepped in to join us as a guest, you were uh, the host, and you had selected a topic for the for the boys. Uh, so I really wanted to make sure that this time when you joined us, you got to 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 take part in the true pleasures of the gauntlet, which is finding a film and 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 you know selecting it for the for the gang. So why don't you tell us about the film that you? chose well um you know i like to think i met the task at least a little bit more closely than ryan did in the literal sense <laughs> and i resent being referred to as a mouse but so when you asked me to do this i had a couple movies in mind and 
I was talking to my roommate, I have to give him a shout out, friend of the pod, Brendan Boyle, and he mentioned this movie, and again, I had never heard of it. I checked into it. Obviously, I'd seen other Alan Moyle films. I think I felt like this movie was appropriate to pick because not only am I friends with both of you, all three of you, um, I am a pretty regular listener of the pod, and I think for... Those that are, there's uh, uh, um, recognizable themes and motifs and modes that you each trend towards in your picks, um, or can at least. And so, you know, you each have your own distinct circle of the Venn diagram that is the gauntlet. And so I wanted to contribute something that wouldn't be too far into any of those circles and would hopefully be something that might not have otherwise been picked for the pod if you didn't invite little old me. So, um, <laughs> without further ado, this movie, Times Square from 1980, directed by Alan Moyle, is a soundtrack musical that follows two teenage runaways rampaging around New York City. They're seeking freedom, fame, friendship, and fun. You've got Nikki Murata, a homeless, juvenile, possibly fugitive, with a penchant for punk music and random outbursts of aggression. She meets Pamela Pearl, the privileged daughter of a New York City commissioner who happens to be in charge of Times Square's revitalization. The two girls uh, are roomed together at a institution, inpatient, facility, hospital type thing due to their, quote, mysterious teenage stress syndrome. And uh, <laughs> suspecting that their problems aren't specifically medical in nature, Nikki, the punk, invites Pamela to break out and find a cure for their problems elsewhere. They steal an ambulance, take up residence in an abandoned pier-side warehouse, and spark the imagination of a discontented radio disc jockey. Johnny LaGuardia, who turns uh, this story of these two runaways into a bit of a local sensation, in the midst of these hijinks, Pam and Nikki find fame with their alter egos, the Sleaze Sisters, and a series of escalating hijinks culminate in a bit of a life-affirming illegal performance at the top of a theater marquee in the middle of the Great White Way. It's it's uh, a complicated movie. There's a lot to talk about in terms of the production, um, but I think it's particularly uh, appropriate not only for the theme, uh, which I think it, it like I said, I think meets a little bit more closely than the Apple, uh, not that this is a competition, but I think it, it, it represents what I wanted it to, something that was a little bit me. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, both of you. Uh, thank you, especially Sherman, because, I mean, I watched the Apple first, and I was... Uh, a little perturbed to say the least, you know, <laughs> on a certain level, I fell maybe Ryan with your choice while I was watching the apple, like, like you took the prompt, just like you, you internalized it too much. 
And I felt like you were rebelling even against me, you know, <laughs> like you tried to choose a film that deliberately was going to get my blood up. Uh, and, and this was it, you know, this is what you did. And then when I watched Sherman's choice, uh, I, you know, my blood pressure started to go down a bit and I was like, okay. However, that being said, as the film went on, uh, I started to really start slapping my forehead because this movie, uh, it starts in a very interesting place and where it wound up, I was, uh, quite, quite, um, quite in awe, I think, of the cinematic gymnastics at play. And I think you alluded to the troubled production, which we can get into, which yeah. which led to a very, very uh, sort of janky uh, experience. A compromised vision, I think, yeah, is how I, I would put it. And we are big fans here on The Gauntlet of compromised visions. So I, I thought it was great. And to take nothing away from the Apple, because I think it is a an interesting film and a well-made film. But uh, yes, it, it really, really stretched the the prompt to uh, to uh, near breaking point, I should say, Ryan. And I guess to maybe start, you know, picking the films apart a little bit, you know, I think a lot of times we like to, to try to to sort of bring the films together at first. And I think there's an obvious sort of surface element in which, you know, the, the rebellious youths in both films happen to be, uh, two girls, right? Two sets of young women. But I think that there's a, a deeper thread that, that can connect these films, which is that I think both of them are using the, this, this premise, uh, each of course, in their own way, to address bigger social issues. You know, when I gave you the topic, <laughs> I was thinking house party. You know, I was thinking stuff like that, animal house. I was thinking yeah. just, just you know, kids cutting loose, doing keg stands, barfing, hooking up in, in you know, your, your parents' bedroom, whatever. But these films... They they try to use this idea of anti-authoritarian rebellion to perhaps give us a glimpse at bigger social issues related to gender, related to age, related to systems of power in general. So I think, you know, again, aside from the surface connection that can be made, uh, there is, for both of these films, for better or worse, uh, an attempt to reach a deeper idea yeah i mean i would even go as far to say i you know after i watched the apple i was a bit anxious and i had realized you know some of the mistakes i maybe had made when picking it but then having watched times square i found a lot in common with the spirit uh, of both of these films it, it very much at least in the sense of the act of rebellion against the system your parents have developed for you and for your life as being an opportunity for personal growth. And I mean, there's a line in Times Square that Tim Curry, as the radio host John LaGuardia, says at one point very early in the film, and it sort of sets up the you know theme that I think Times Square is attempting to engage with throughout the film. Again, a very compromised production with lots of scenes seemingly missing from it. But he does say... You have something very special inside you, young lady. The seed 
that contains your unique self. You must learn to nurture that seed. Maybe you're all alone. That's a pretty scary place to be. You may have to jump off into the darkness. How desperate they feel those moments before you jump. But sometimes you just gotta do it. You gotta pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you gotta jump. And you need to jump off into the darkness for that seed to grow. And I think that at the very least, the thing I walked away from with the apple, and as I mentioned, it being such a, a quick production, it was shot in 11 days. And one thing I noticed in a lot of interviews with Samira Makhmabov that she likes to toss around is like, you know, we shot this thing in 11 days, but they grew more in those 11 days than they had in 11 years. And I know that's a bit hyperbolic, but watching the film... I do think there's a remarkable difference between when we meet these girls at the very beginning and how they behave and act and sound even very simply, or even the way they move their bodies by the end of the film. Because up to the point of the filmmakers arriving, they had no social interaction. And the beginning of this film, sort of to set it up, is, is really horrifying. And I was really jarred by the introduction. The film begins digitally. And I learned that the reason for this was because, again, Samira read the news and she's like, I got to film this. I got to get out there, you know, sort of working at the speed of thought. I got to get a camera to capture what's going on. She was so obsessed with the idea of it. And the beginnings in digital because it was truly just the 35s weren't ready. They had to like put the orders in to get production started. Mm -hmm. She went and got permission from the father and she arrived at the welfare center. And I mean, when we meet these two girls... They're, they're borderline feral. You know, they, they, they really struggle to communicate. They had just been cleaned up. Their language abilities are very limited. Just watching their eyes and the way they move, they really struggle to just communicate any sense of what they're looking for, what they need, and what they want. And by the end of the film, that's not necessarily the case. There is a very clear element of growth there. And so I guess this is sort of a long-winded way of saying, watching both of these films, I do actually think when I thought No Parents, No Rules, to me, those types of films very often at their heart are about what do we learn when we go outside of these systems and instructions our parents have developed for us? Because that, I feel like that's so much of it, right? It's just a general coming-of-age genre. Like, what are we, how are we growing? Mm -hmm. What are we learning? And the Apple, you know, it's a small little film. There is an exceptional amount of growth, and, and it would go beyond. We'll talk a little bit later about where the very limited information I have of where these girls are now. Um, but I do think that that's present in both films, this idea that you have these parents that are literally imprisoning you in certain respects. Here the girls are locked inside with their blind mother in the apple. And in Times Square, we have them in this facility having people pointing fingers at them and saying, you're ill. There's yeah. something wrong with you. Like, you are not a functioning member of society. Um, and they break out of that in order to grow. Absolutely, yeah. I think it's interesting because there's a flip side to that coin getting into the more uh, questionable ways I think Times Square ends. When you were talking about when you were doing the intro of, of the Apple and talked about Samira's opportunism, possible opportunism, 
that make that made me think of the Tim Curry Johnny LaGuardia character and sort of where how his interaction with the Slees sisters culminates in the film, which uh, to me I think ends up becoming less honest or sincere than that first quote you started with that you mentioned about jumping. Um, into the unknown that he delivers at the beginning of the movie. And it doesn't, you know, I'm still unsure whether his character lives up to that statement or not. I love that you mentioned that because that was, to me, the biggest link between these films. And I think Times Square even clarified elements of the apple for me. Because at first, while watching Times Square, I was like, oh, interesting. Tim Curry's like the welfare lady in the apple she's the one that's encouraging them to go out play live your own life get away from your parents but then by the end of the film i was like is tim curry samira makmaboff and do i no longer respect certain elements of what samira makmaboff was trying to do with the apple i you know i i think when the apple ended i was like oh there, there was a lot of beauty here and i do think i still like the movie but it was almost as if tim curry's character in Times Square made me realize that maybe what Samira was doing wasn't really up to snuff. Mm -hmm. Well, that's <laughs> it. I mean, especially in the case of Times Square, like you're talking about with Tim Curry's character, as the film went on, he became much more like creepy and villainous to me. And I don't know if that is just, again, because of the troubled production, we should point out one of the things that happened is, is at a certain point, uh, Moyle just fucking walked while the film was still yeah. in production, you know, and disputes perhaps about what the film was really supposed to do and what the characters were supposed to be. And especially at the ending, like I was like, Tim Curry's a fucking, he's, he's almost worse than the dad, uh, on a certain level, you know? And that's again, another like connection I, I think to bring up, you know, we have, we have these father figures, uh, you know, and, and fathers particularly who are sort of like using their, their daughters for their own, uh, you know, sense of perhaps like moral certitude uh you know in the case of the apple i think it's very um it's very psychologically troubling to to think about perhaps what's going on there uh especially in a place that's you know very patriarchal like iran and very you know um conservative uh but that's also what's happening in with 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 pam's father where, you know, Pam is, you know, when we're first introduced to Pam, uh, you know, we get her dad, who is uh, a, a figure working within the the mayor's office, I believe. And He's and a the, commissioner, they say. Yeah. Yeah. The project that he's heading up is, is trying to revitalize the seedy Times Square of, you know, late 70s, early 80s New York, you know, and, and he's particularly talking about it in very, like, moralistic ways. And he's using his daughter as a means to sort of, like, make these points about, you know, living clean and living better and living a, 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 a less X-rated life. He keeps using, like, the term X-rated to talk about, like, Times Square. And... You know, in the case of the Apple, the, the girls, as you pointed out, Ryan, like they have no they have no conception of the outside world. So they don't even know what to rebel against. Uh, but right away in Times Square, Pam, like when she's listening to her father, 
you know, spin this tale about her wanting to go see One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest at a theater in yeah. Times Square. Last week, my daughter Pamela asked to go see One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. She's 13. She's here with me this afternoon. Isn't she pretty? Now, I've seen the movie. It's a good picture. I don't care if she has to lie about her age to get in. After all, I'm a liberal. <laughs> but when she told me where the damn thing was playing, 42nd Street and 7th Avenue, I had to put my foot down. Well, I don't mind telling you, we had a little fight. And she, of course, began to argue with me, but, oh, Daddy, Daddy, the film is only rated R. It's not true. Well, that may be so, I said. It's not true. But that street outside is rated X. And and him giving her this whole speech about the movie might be R-rated, but the theater's in an X-rated area. No way. And I, and she just immediately, like, freaks out and is like, you're lying. That's not what fucking happened. And she storms out. And I, of course, like, wrote down in my notes, like, you know, the, the, the Obama, you lie moment, you know, it was very, <laughs> it was delivered in a very similar way. You yeah. know, this politician is, who's going perhaps a little bit too far, but, but yeah, you know, we have these like father figures and we have daughters who are sort of trapped in their father's vision, ultimate vision of, of, of how they think the world is supposed to operate or should ideally operate. And there are also father figures that are suddenly in the public light. I guess in the case of Times Square, he's a commissioner. He's always public facing, but he's very specifically running a new campaign of cleaning up Times Square to make Times Square this restored area that will now bring in more tourists and be clean and not be this dumping ground of excess and criminals and et cetera, et cetera, politicians speak. And then in the Apple, the father, the, the story of the fact that he's imprisoning his daughters is national news. And everyone in town knows about it, and he's being confronted about it. Much of the film, we spend time with people reacting, whether it's to the welfare worker saying, why'd you let them fucking go back like mm -hmm. we this guy you know and then at the same time like oh i'm glad you brought him back you know we get all these different perspectives but the father is sort of also panicking at being suddenly in the limelight he's a man who's very nervous about his honor and he feels that all these slights are doing him a great dishonor and there's something similar happening in times square he's nervous that the fact that his daughter's troubles are now becoming just a media sensation around the city because the Tim Curry is making a big show of it on the radio and suddenly everyone knows and they become cult folk heroes. That's also kind of what happens in the Apple, you know? It got Samira's attention and she ran there with a fucking 35-millimeter camera, you know, and she was <laughs> trying to capture it all. And without getting ahead of ourselves, you know, even at the end, there's, like, this moment for both of the dads of, like, I understand now, like, being confronted with um you know their mistakes or or what they you know their ignorance sure but sure i feel like i should add some more background uh that should have been at the top um 
about Times Square. Just to contextualize some of what we're talking about, because um, I think a lot of its problems or um, I, I, maybe hypocrisies is the right word um, stem from its its production, where it comes from, and specifically where the money comes from. So um, Alan Moyle is a young Canadian filmmaker at this time coming off of his first super low-budget independent film. Um, interestingly, before this, um, throughout the mid to late 70s, he was an actor um, just playing bit parts for other low-budget filmmakers he knew, but specifically the one performance a few years before this movie um, that was notable is as the young man in the lobby from David Cronenberg's Rabbit. <laughs> so I thought that was uh, that was fun. So anyways, um, he is a, a, a music nerd. Um, I, I haven't seen his first film, but if we look... Um, just looking at, at the films he's made since, which aren't many, but they all relate to a similar milieu of the disc jockey, music-loving, specifically maybe like punk slash rock. You would both be able to describe um, the specific music genres with a bit more specificity than I. Yeah, this is like on a certain level... I could see people trying to conceive like all these different minds in the room trying to figure out what this movie's supposed to be. Yeah. And it's sort of like, what if we did like a punk rock feminist Saturday night fever? Yes. Well, quite literally. Yeah. Yeah. Like a punk rock grease, you know, something yeah. like that along those lines. And then, you know, Moyle having his perception of it being this, this gritty, you know, New York street movie and producers and executives and, and music label impresarios trying to be like, can we get some more songs in there though? You know, uh, maybe a little bit, a little bit less feminist lesbian coming of age story and more, uh, let's build a, a new music star, right? You feel all those tensions at place in there. I mean, you, yeah, that's abs That's exactly what happened. Um, so to go back to the, um, uh, I guess the, the impetus for the story, the, the, the tale is that, uh, Moyle himself, as well as a friend of his, uh, Leanne Ungar, they came up with the story when they found a diary in a secondhand couch that they had gotten. And it was this this personal diary from a young woman that they characterized as mentally disturbed. And Moyle described her as burning the candle at both ends, going into bars when she was too young, and someone that had no intention of reaching the age of 21. All of these things that that end up becoming a part of the Nikki character. And so that's, that's where this project begins, and Moyle and Leanne come up with this story eventually written by Jacob Brackman. And these are really two interesting people beyond Moyle, um... Whose other credits beyond this include Empire Records and Pump Up the Volume, probably most famously. But so I just want to talk about these two people. Leanne Ungar um, is, again, I think just a New York acquaintance of his, but works in the music industry. But she's she mixed for Leonard Cohen, uh, assisted on James Brown Records, worked with Cat Stevens. Um, she did uncredited work on Lizzie Borden's Working Girls and then eventually 
moils pump up the volume. So this is the person that came up with the idea for the story along with with Moyle, and I don't know specifically, there's not a lot of information about her in related in relation to the story, but I'm imagining a lot of the the central female character qualities are coming from her more distinctly than they are coming from Moyle. There is within the script a more explicit lesbian romance between these two young women that gets removed from from the film, but we'll talk about that in a sec. Um, well, I love the anecdote about him finding the journal in the couch, uh, like that being the main source, just like a dirty old couch that he found, like someone's like confessions yes. about their life. And yeah. when we meet her, I mean, the way she's depicted, uh, maybe this is like slightly insensitive, but she's almost like more feral than the girls in the apple. I mean, mm -hmm. she's out of control. I do love there's like an incredible image in the film when we're sort of like introduced to her and like or at least the two women meet each other and that's when pam is like she's sent to this hospital to have her mental state assessed and when the nurse is like oh here your roommate nikki is in here nikki i have someone for you to meet nikki can you hear me and we see the divider between the the hospital beds and Nikki's, there's like somewhat of her shadow behind it, but then her cigarette starts burning a hole through the cloth divider. And that's like how we meet Nikki. Uh, uh, Nikki? Nikki, you know there's no smoking in here. Just put the cigarette away, please, will you? Nikki Murata, I'd like you to meet Pamela Pearl. Sure you're gonna be great friends. Um, and then throughout, she's just straddling um, a big boombox, and she's playing the Ramones, I Want to Be Sedated. That becomes, like, the two, the two of them, their song that, like, kind of binds them, you know? And, you know, like, again, for all the—it's, like, again, one of those things where we have these compromised films, and there's these whole chunks of it just missing or broken, and we're trying to pick the pieces back up and see what we have here, like— that was one of the images where I was like, that will linger in my memory. That was pretty inspired. There are definitely— in both of these films, uh, they were they were extremely uneven experiences for me. Uh, in in that you know, in both of these films, there were times where I was just I was humming along with it, and I was I was seeing uh, poetic imagery, and I was I was connecting to uh, the the deeper ideas that we had talked about of growth and, and maturity and and how hard it can be to to be just simply young uh, in this world in in two extremely different worlds you know uh, Iran and and New York City um, and then there were other times where I was just going like you know right after one of those moments I would I would find myself in the very next scene or sequence going what the hell? <laughs> yeah, like that's where are we going. We're going here. Yeah, like how did we get here? You know. Yeah, yeah, and I think that again that speaks to a lot of what you know we've been talking about. You know, in in the case of the Apple, we have a a young, very young filmmaker trying to find their way with with a very inspired idea very inspired subject matter um but but someone who's not quite yet formed perhaps even as a human being you know at 17 
uh, as like a fully actualized human, you know, someone that's sort of reaching out in their own ways and also perhaps trying to to thumb their nose at authority and do it their way. Um, and in the case of, of Times Square, it's that, you know... The Bee Gees. Yeah, there's just the fucking Bee Gees, you know? And how, how can we get Bowie and <laughs> Bowie get a song in here, you know? Whatever the fuck, you know? Just, like, reading about that, that like, there's just too many cooks in the case of, of Times Square. So on the one hand, we have, you know, one sort of singular vision that's not quite sure of what it wants to focus on and and in the others we have in in Times Square we have some people have a very specific idea of what they want to focus on uh and and the problem is there's just too many people trying to focus on different things you know Moyle's direction at times it's it's great you know the 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 touching moments between the two of them the, the introduction of characters visually, uh, just very well-composed shots. But yeah, you know, it's like, what the hell is this movie supposed to be? I guess, what the hell are both of these movies supposed to be? You know, it's it's a very, very, very... Both of them are just, just, just very messy. Very messy. Yeah, I just wanted to add, like, just for the... For people listening that aren't aren't familiar with with the story, um, I think you know that diary, that grittiness, that truth is what Moyle and Unger were hoping to to get to. I I, I don't really know where Brackman stood on that scale, but the movie got made eventually because it was picked up by um, former music manager and record producer from. The UK, Robert Stigwood. Up until this point, Moyle had been struggling to get any movie made after his first film, and he was working on something else, and it fell through, and uh, Robert Stigwood, this music producer, the manager of the Bee Gees, among other um, contemporary pop bands at the time, expressed interest and wanted to turn this into... quite literally the follow-up to his new string of movies in his entrance into Hollywood filmmaking with Saturday Night Fever, uh, Grease, and Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, the the Bee Gees film. Um, and so him taking over production, not only providing the the source of the funding, but also running the production itself became the biggest force that Moyle had to contend with. And so, as, as Andy mentioned earlier on, uh, he left the production. It accounts vary whether he was fired, whether he was pushed out, or whether he left. But there was a point that he was asked um, to, to do reshoots, to add other musical sequences, like you mentioned, because not only... Are there a few original songs in the film that are sung and performed on screen? There's, it's almost wall-to-wall popular music. Um, yeah, I mean, there's almost more music playing than there are scenes right. happening yes. at times in the movie. And, and, you know, there's even an explicit almost joke or or rip on on disco at the very beginning of the movie, whereas Nikki's like kind of stomping through the opening credits with her guitar and her speaker. Um, she just kind of like walks past a disco and looks at the group of people outside snidely. Um, and then so, you know, the ultimate joke being this film is produced by 
the manager of the Bee Gees, who insists on including a, uh, a Robin Gibb song over the closing credits of the film. Um, and, you know, say what you will about the Bee Gees and that song. Uh, you know, not a bad song, but probably not the most appropriate for this movie. No, yeah, extremely tone deaf to yeah. have that thing kind of yeah. wrap everything up, you know? Yeah. There's a lot of tone deaf moments uh, throughout, and they yes. really start to pile up yes. in that film. Now, I guess, you know, you could make the same case about certain things you know and ryan you've already introduced this with the apple you know of just being like ooh, you know maybe maybe you shouldn't have done that <laughs> you know maybe that was a little too much but i guess i give the apple a little bit more i guess i give it a little bit more credit in that regard because it is someone who i think has their heart in the right place where so many of the the really tone deaf and questionable things that we're going to experience in uh, Times Square just seem so uh, exploitative on a commercial level, right? Uh, if the Apple is exploitative at times on a sort of like emotional, perhaps, or psychological level, uh, Times Square is exploitative in the sense that, yes, I just, I, I can see all the fucking big sweaty suits in a room trying to get their slice of this, you know, going like, yeah, this could be a great opportunity for us to sell some Robin Gibbs singles too, you know? I mean, it's, it is, it is gross. And I think the film, whether intentionally or, or not, uh, like really starts to, to show us that. And I think we're getting a little, uh, like, yeah, jumbled here and we're sort of jumping towards the, the sort of like bigger picture at the end of, of these films. And it might benefit us to, to sort of pull back a little bit and, and try to just sort of like lay out these worlds a, a little yeah. bit more. Um, you know, I think that the, the case that can be made for both of these films, I think that again is 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 um, a very positive thing, uh, you know, a, a sort of like good mark for both of these films. I think is their 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 utilization of space, you know, um, in again very different ways. You know, is that both of these filmmakers do a great job of presenting the world to us and the world of these characters uh in the case of the apple you know it's an extremely isolated world that we really spend a lot of time with uh and it feels very oppressive and claustrophobic as a result and obviously in the case of times square it's the complete opposite where it's new york city and look how big and vast and massive it is you know so i think both filmmakers do a very good job of playing with those spaces for different purposes especially towards the characters yeah i mean i even think that times square has a lot of documentary appeal in the way that it is capturing times square and it is capturing the era there is a lot of really remarkable street photography i mean as i said the apple is very 
clearly a hybrid documentary. But again, even in Times Square, there is there's lots of that. We, we get in a picture of Times Square where it's a it's a time in history where on one end of the street you could see Charles Bronson in St. Ives, and at the other end of the street you could see Charles Bronson in Hard Times. It's like <laughs> this magical space where everyone's dancing, grooving, and maybe a little dirty, but like there's some reality there. There's some punk realness to to that space, and that is on camera. I, I do think it's really funny that Times Square ends with like a, a subtitle that says "filmed entirely in New York City." Yeah, <laughs> it's like what. Why? Why did you put that in there? Like, yeah, yeah duh. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, no shit. I could smell that movie. And it's funny because normally when people write that at the end of a movie, it's more acknowledging like, oh, this was filmed entirely in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Like, here's a place that you know typically we we haven't shot a film in, and this wasn't a studio. This was on location. Here we are in a national park or something like that. Like, thank you to the National Forest Service for letting us film this production here. Here's, yeah. This was shot in New York. It's like, yeah, so are, like, half the movies made in America. <laughs> yeah, yes. but I don't know. Like, at this time, at, that's becoming less and less of a thing. Like, Mean Streets and Godfather, they shot in L.A. Um, I think, like, when I saw that, and I'm glad you brought up this idea of space, because I think that's, like, that is the saving grace of of Times Square. Um, uh, amidst, you know, a few little gems of performance and some really nice scenes, it's this document that that captures a place that that no longer exists and really wouldn't exist a couple years later. You know, this is right before Reagan becomes president and the true life revitalization of Times Square is right on the horizon. And it's interesting that the film like then also has this character, you know, Pam's dad, who is is specifically trying to spearhead that project. And this is one of the sort of like sub. I guess you'd call it a subplot that's sort of tacked on where, where, you know, and you, you both sort of introduced this idea where the girls in their rebellious journey are, you know, become the sort of centerpiece for this, this confrontation that's, that's happening about, you know, this potential revitalization of Times Square, right? Pam's dad is leading the project to, to clean up the streets. And Tim Curry's character, Johnny LaGuardia, is trying to represent, you know, keep Times Square weird, right? Like, keep it freaky. It's a great place to grow up and, and jump into the darkness. See, like, that's... And I gotta go back to that thing, you know? And you brought this up. You already introduced it when, he, when he's, like, talking to the girls. And he brings this point about, you know... Like finding out about yourself and, and sometimes you've just got to jump. You got to jump into the darkness. I was looking at the girl and they're like, she's listening to this and, and she is clearly like very depressed and potentially suicidal. And I was thinking like, and he's, he's specifically addressing her, you know, he's yeah. not speaking to other people. It's pointed out that like, she's been writing him letters and, and communicating with him. And so he's speaking directly to her. And then he says something like, listen, sometimes you just got to <laughs> jump. You just got to jump into yeah. the darkness. And I'm thinking, this poor girl's got to fucking kill herself. This guy's telling her to jump. That's the worst thing you possibly say to somebody in her fucking position. But again, yeah. this goes to the sort of like exploitation, like, He's using her as a way to make, a, you know, a point about how, you know, this city is vibrant because it has 
places like this, you know, like, like it, uh, it reminded me again of a film that we just recently watched, you know, um, uh, Simone Barbez, you know, and it's like, Hey, you know, you need these kinds of spaces for the outcasts of society to, to just simply live and be themselves. But, but of course, yeah, it just starts to feel so, so, uh, nasty and self-serving, you know, for both the dad and Tim Curry. But the difference being that as the film goes on, like the dad, it's like he, his character starts to like come around to the idea of like, yeah, maybe Times Square is good the way it is. And like Tim Curry's the one leaning in and just being like, it's all according to my plan. You know, <laughs> like it's all working out exactly as I envisioned it. I mean, there's a fucked up shot near the end and clearly doing the research, you find out that that whole ending was like second unit, like tacked on. And like, clearly they couldn't get Tim Curry back on location or whatever. So they just have shots of him at the ending, like concert, watching it through a telescope far away. And he has like crazy. He's just, it's just swear to God. He says like, like it's all coming together. It's like looking at these young girls through a telescope. Like he's a fucking James Bond villain or some shit like that. Bond alert. Yeah. I didn't mean to die. Sorry. You know, I don't know if you found it in the research, but he um, uh, apparently only shot for at most three days on this production. Top build um, on the poster, in the credits, opening credits. Uh, he's the first actor listed right after Robert Stiegwood, the producer. Uh, yeah. Alan Moyle's name doesn't come up until the end of the credits, spelled incorrectly. I don't know, like, why that happened, if that was, <laughs> really? like, his decision or Stigwood just not caring, but... Um, yeah, and that's clear because Curry's only in, like, two locations throughout the entire film you know he's in his 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 you know the radio studio and then a few times he's like he's out on the balcony of the studio and then then there's only other one scene yeah where he goes to their like garbage palace and like (laughs) hangs out with them in their 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 (laughs) rat their ragamuffin shithole or whatever they're living in you know but yeah i mean this is right after rocky horror and it's exactly like you were saying before the suits robert stigwood is like He's a hit. We're putting him in this role. And, um, you know, I don't know how much that role changed from the script to what we saw on the screen. But, yeah. Very. Sure. And, and also not necessarily even just because of his popularity because of Rocky Horror, but because his persona from Rocky Horror is that, you know, Tim Curry represents, you know, being weird, being a yeah. freak, being a, 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 a sort of like outcast in society and, and like embracing that. So it's a, it is a very, you know, I don't want to call it stunt casting, but it's it's like on that level of just yeah. being like, you know, this isn't. Johnny LaGuardia, this is Tim Curry telling you it's okay to be weird, right? And that's that's the role he's meant to play, but it just, it comes off so twisted, especially, I mean, again, not to get ahead of ourselves, but we can get into a very, very, there's a very, few very problematic scenes. Yeah. You, know, you were talking about the apple. Would the apple be made the same way in 2022? I'll tell you flat out. There is no fucking way in hell Times Square would be made no. the way it was with the content that it has in 2022. Um, so to back up a little bit there at, at a certain point in the 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 journey, the adventure of these two, you know, now 
homeless, jobless, young 13, 15-year-old girls, they seek out employment that, that you know, uh, fits within their 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 scope of of this newfound freedom and so uh nikki convinces pam to audition to work at a strip club um now she she upon her first interview refuses flat out to take her clothes off i'm not dancing topless you're not, you're not dancing topless and you want a job Your friend Nikki tells me um, you're 18 years old. Is that true? Yes. Can you prove it? Yes. You want a job, and you don't want to dance topless. I like that. Class, respect. I like that. It's good for the club. It's good for business. But she's given this audition, and... In what turns out to be like a, a, a surprisingly wholesome scene, she just starts to to go from this this very uh, like reserved and insecure physical posturing to just letting loose and get grooving to the music and having fun. And and yes, problematic, yes, very, you know, questionable and irksome. But right there on the surface of of her just having this really nice genuine moment of performance is is something that, that to me livened up the experience because while I think I can see like tiny shreds of, of direction from Moyle I, I personally found most of the direction to be inert and like very counter uh, or in conflict with what was assumed to have like to be like a, a story filled with energy and momentum but then we so she gets the job at the strip club, right? And yeah, the thirteen-year-old, by the way, we should point out, gets the job. She at doesn't, the strip club. you know, take her clothes off, but she's a dancer. The wholesome strip moment club that and, Sherman described. Well, but you know, this <laughs> think about the strip club. It's like she's doing this dance, and instead of everyone like, what is this kid doing up there dancing with their clothes on? Everyone in the club is just like, yeah, all right, get it. And, like, they all start having a good, wholesome time. Well, here's my thing, too. I would even go as far to say that that scene is not problematic and instead actually reflects back on sort of what I was talking about, this idea of this documentary realism of Times Square. There's something that I actually found pretty remarkable about that sequence and how it captures like yeah this was a time period where a 13 year old could just say i'm 18 and they'd be like all right you could work here at our strip club like it's horrifying <laughs> sure yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's how i felt i gotta say this is the moment when pam is now dancing at the strip club and and you know she's got the job she's waitressing and, you know, the, the, the greasy owner's like nodding, like, yeah, this is going to class up the joint, you know? And she's up there dancing and having time. This is the moment where Sherman, I really did go, all right, no parents, no rules. <laughs> like, we made it. We're here. Like, <laughs> this is the most no parents, no rules, you know? We've got 13-year-olds, uh, and, and it's being presented to us as a moment of like triumph for their character that they overcame their insecurities to, to, to win the job at the strip club by pretending to be 18 to the most either clueless 
owner of a bar ever or, you know, uh, the biggest pedophile that that lives and works in New York City. Uh, that was the moment where I was like, all right, you did it. You made it, Sherman. Congratulations. <laughs> well, but so you achieved I, you know, the topic. I appreciate that. And I agree. But I want to talk about the next scene that uh, happens at this location, because later on, the father who has been like on a citywide search for his daughter, uh, more or less right after she breaks out of the hospital. He, in his stature and position as a politician, um, essentially makes it public that his daughter has been kidnapped by Nikki. And that's the story, and the story that's combated by Johnny LaGuardia's radio show. But nevertheless, he's like got all of his people looking for her, and eventually he gets word that she's working at this place. So he goes to visit her. He goes to find her and see her. And he walks in and he sees her on stage in between performances, just practicing a dance um, to... Lou Reed's Walk on the Wild Side. Yeah. yeah. And again, you know, it still has not only this layer of of horror and creepiness, but also stra- something strangely wholesome where she's like, again, found something that sh- that makes her feel alive, that makes her feel good and he just sits there and watches he doesn't like barge in and and pull her away he just sits down and watches her and then she realizes he's watching her and and she runs away and yeah daddy gets a little show too <laughs> right i wouldn't and describe so, any of this as wholesome no i would say <laughs> this is the most like yucky. truly transgressive <laughs> moment in the movie where like it actually does something that's you know can be considered punk i guess all right now now you're Maybe. gonna be doing some back <laughs> well, not yet, not here's, 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 i thought what... we were walking into this today and ryan was gonna be getting raked over the coals but the the deeper we get into this <laughs> the more layers we cut into this onion i'm 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 now very very much you know you're 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 on the hook this time pal that's <laughs> you both both of you i'm telling you this week it was no parents no rules and i'm feeling for some reason now like the parent who has to Scold you both for different reasons. <laughs> you know, Marsh leaves for one week and you two, you just, you both go off the well, deep end in your own, in your own ways, you know? Well, here, let me, you know, what I want to bring this back to then is let's, let's bring it back to no parents, no rules. And let's talk about two of my favorite moments in both films. And that is the moments of liberation. Yeah. And the moments of breaking out from these rules that the parents have set up. So I should detail just a little bit more of the family life in the Apple. So the two daughters, Zara and Masume, their parents, they have a father who just locks them up every day, goes around town, picks up his bread, picks up his giant cube of ice and just shuffles back home. And, you know, he claims, I lock the door because the neighborhood boys, they're always playing with balls and they end up over our wall. Then they climb over the wall. And if I let my daughters play in the yard, I would be dishonored if those boys touched them, right? Mm -hmm. That's his big fear. He tries to reorient everything as I'm protecting my daughters from dishonor. Um, But then there's this other really odd element, and I think it's one of the least delicately handled things in the film, and that is the presence of the mother. And that's another way these parents have developed these rules. They're like, just to get these rules out in the open for the apple, the mother is blind, and she walks around completely covered in cloth. She blocks her face out. She's always holding cloth over her face. And she claims they lock the daughters in because the mother's blind and they, they can't let them out. She'll never be able to find them and that sort of thing. And 
Samira never got permission from the mother to shoot this movie because she says that she's just difficult to work with. So she got permission from the father, but which is then all very dubious because the father very clearly uses the film as a way to promote his own cause. But the mother also doesn't speak Farsi. She speaks Turkish. And that's another reason they want to lock him in, right? Because she can't communicate with the outside world to try and find her children. She's blind. She doesn't speak the language. But so eventually, you know, we're treated for a long time in this film to these rules and to this prison that they live in. Literally imprisoned, holding onto the bars of the door of their home, looking out at the sun through a chain link fence. But a, a welfare worker does show up and she locks the father in the house gets him a hacksaw and says, you need to, if you want to leave, you got to saw your way out of here. I'm going to let your daughters go Mm -hmm. out and enjoy the town and play. And so I did love how the, in both films, when we finally have no parents, no rules, when it's up to them to go and do what they want to do, in both instances, the first thing they do is theft, yeah. which I think is kind of fun. In Times Square, the girls break out of the hospital. Nikki gets behind the wheels of an ambulance. They drive the wrong way up a, an expressway, an elevated expressway, nearly colliding with a ton of cars, causing mass chaos. It's exhilarating. It's fun. There they are, tearing it up on the road. Hey, you really sick or what? Well, I don't know, really. See, um, the doctors, um... They won't tell me what's wrong with me. <laughs> they ain't never gonna tell you what's wrong with you. I get my revenge. I'm not gonna tell what's wrong with them either. <laughs> Keep them hopping. <laughs> and then we've got Zara and Masume in the apple. The first thing they do as they're wandering the alleys of their neighborhood is there's a local boy who lugs around this like very dirty foam cooler that's full of ice cream. And, you know, he denies them earlier in the film it's a bit of a plant. You know, they don't have enough money, so they can't have any ice cream. And it's essentially like a mini, like, instinctual heist slash con where they try to steal the ice cream. He chases after one of the girls um, in an argument and then... Zara held behind. She steals some ice cream, starts feeding it to the neighborhood goat. But I do love, at the very least, when we have those moments of liberations It's in both films, it is exhilarating and beautiful. We have people tearing it up on the highway in an ambulance. We've got other two girls who are just going after what they want. They're finally having within their grasp something that can belong to them and that they can enjoy. And that's just some lukewarm ice cream from, from a little boy on the road, you know? And and that's the thing, you know, again, um, to, 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 again, like, to take nothing away from the apple because I do think it's a, it's an interesting film and it's a film that's like, you know, it's, it's really, like, stuck, with me and and there's mm-hmm. things in that film that that I will will hold on to for a long time you know the the moment you've described you know uh with the father that the the tables being turned and him now being imprisoned and and this like really just like badass social worker who I I thought was the best character in the the film with the the yeah. the one who's you know the most I think um uh you know has the most depth really, you know, in terms of like what they are doing and what they represent and, and their, you know, their role within this liberation. But, you know, that's also 
where I started to, to find the really subtle humor in the apple. You know, I think at first it was coming off so, so heavy to me, you know, and it was so, uh, there was just so much there that I was just, yeah, being like shocked by and horrified by, you know, it's this like, this, this, these children, these like feral child prisoners. Again, I was like, Hey, no parents, no rules. It's let's party down. And then right away I get, I get, I get feral child prisoners, you know? And I was like, ah, oh, man, dang it. But, but, but like sort of once we get there, once we get to the moment of liberation, I think the film, the tone of the film really shifts. And there's a lot of like very subtle, very dry humor that starts to emerge, especially like with the father figure uh, and that whole bit of him like trying to hacksaw his way out of these bars, you know? And I just loved at a certain point, you know, while the girls are off stealing their ice cream and doing their thing, uh, Makhmabaf just cuts back to him and he's gotten through like one bar and he just looks exhausted and he just like grabs a big cup of water and he's just like bleep, bleep, bleep. like I need a water break I just got through <laughs> one bar it was like three hours and, and like boy I'm, I'm fucked I'm gonna be in here all day uh, and you know like there's another bit where when they the the social worker has like come back to like just check in on his status you know like has he gotten through this thing yet and there's this really great shot from the front gate looking in at the 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 door with the bars and now he's like kind of like climbed up on the bars like he's like up in a position just holding the hacksaw and he's just looking at her so pathetically and he's like can you just let me <laughs> you know? just, like there was some some humor in there and like how much of it was like you know planned or intentional or unintentional like it doesn't really matter because it's it's there and it's one of the saving graces of the film you know that it has these moments, these really subtle, touching moments. When the girls in the apple are out, we, we start to get glimpses also into just the world, you know, the, the, the world of Iran in, in you know, 1998, uh, in the late 90s. And we see the, the, the town and the way people interact. And, you know, at first there's this idea, like, you're missing out on so many wonderful things. And yet they kind of encounter... Uh, you know, in a similar way, I guess, to the girls in Times Square, that, you know, the world isn't just this wonderful place just waiting to embrace these two with open arms. Like, they sort of, they struggle. They struggle to find their place. A part of it is the fact that they have not been socialized, but, but there's another element here that they are now sort of like empty vessels. And as they enter the world... You have to wonder, and I, I, I wonder how much of this was Makhbobov's point as well, and is this the exploitation as well, that it's also like, okay, uh, let's see these girls run into some shitty people or some questionable people, you know? After the, the ice cream thing, I mean, like, one of the first other boys I think they encounter is a guy that's just, like, torturing these little girls with an apple on a on a string who's, like you know, dangling the apple over their heads and, you know, like, and that little, that little miscreant, he's going to come back later too. Like that's just his form of entertainment is just, is just like dangling an apple over people's heads on a string. Yeah. You know, he does speak in defense of them later though, but yeah, he does like lead them around town because he can tell that they're 
a bit animalistic and just intrigued by the apple and he carries it over his shoulder yeah. you know just leading them to different parts of the of the town yeah he's a little Dennis the Menace of the neighborhood <laughs> I felt you know well what was most interesting to me and like humorous because I think there's like I think those those moments you mentioned and even some of the other moments with the apple boy and the other two girls the other sisters um those are I to me intentionally like cute and funny moments but I yeah. what was funny to me especially was that ev- with all these episodes after they are liberated they all result in them having to come back home to get money to like pay for something like yeah. the apple boy is like come on we'll go buy some apples and then they go to the shop and the guy is like it's 200 you gotta you gotta pay and then so they go back they borrow money and then the same thing with the ice cream and then the the watch at the end yeah there was another great bit as well in there with the money you know when they go back and and you know the the dad's still trying to <laughs> saw his way through and they're like hey <laughs> yeah we need some money or whatever and he's like no 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 I gave them a coin once. I gave them one Tolman earlier and they swallowed it. And, and, you know, it took me an hour to get the thing out. I had to take them to the hospital. Almost ruined me the cost of taking them to the hospital to get this coin removed because they swallowed it. And then the kid, the apple boy, like fires back. Give them a note then. Give them a bill. They're not going to swallow that. What that what's that going to do? They're not going to choke on that. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, game, set, match. Good point right there. Yeah, you know? I love like a, a sharp, like Iranian child. That's something that I feel is like very common, especially in like Iranian new wave films. There's always like precocious children or it's just, it's like culturally, they're not afraid of firing right back at adults, which mm-hmm. I think is something that is present in both like Jafar Panahi films and most in Makhmabah films. That's something they, they deal with a lot. And I guess with, with this apple boy and talking about the apples and their quest for the apples, it reminds me of another element of this film that I'm curious to hear how you both sort of engaged with it. So here we have a film, obviously, from a very young woman, you know, 17, 18 years old when she's making it. So a lot of its symbolism is pretty literalized, right? It's sort mm-hmm. of stuffed in there to try and make a point. And the apple itself, right, that was something she saw when she first arrived at the welfare office at the beginning when it's all digital, she saw them like cradling an apple. So she had these synaptic connections, Samira Makhmabov, to then, you know, make the apple be a central image throughout the film, something that's like dangling out of reach, something they're looking for. And at least, you know, my interpretation of this I'm assuming that it's like sort of a Garden of Eden thing where it's like the forbidden fruit going after the apple, especially thinking about it from the perspective of woman Eve grabbing the apple. This is like a moment of woman's liberation of a sort. They're liberating themselves from these rules. But there are many images throughout that are like heavily symbolic, right? They're given a a mirror and a comb so, so they can like look at themselves and think about how they look. Um, and there's uh, one of my favorite shot of the film is when one of the first things they do, like just before they steal the ice cream, is they see a hose on the road and they take their mirrors and they're looking at themselves, but then they're running the hose over the mirrors um, and watching the water cascade down the images of their faces. And to me, that, you know, I don't know whether it was arranged or not, it seems like one of those things that maybe instinctually they just did and was captured and feels so divergent from the typical ways we associate the use of these types of objects. 
And that was a moment that I found like exceptionally beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think for me, from my perspective, as I, I I sort of looked at the film as a whole, like I I I saw in here Mahmoudov using this story to also, you know, uh, gain entry into a broader exploration of. Again, as I mentioned earlier, the sort of like patriarchal quality of of Iran, especially like post-revolutionary Iran and the role of women in this society and the ways in which in certain conservative societies, women are are essentially like just locked up indoors. And yes, as you mentioned, the whole idea of the Garden of Eden and, you know, Eve's sin, the the apple of knowledge, right, and and wanting to 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 eat from it, you know, from the tree of life or whatever. Um, so, like, yes, I saw in here for me, Mahmoud kind of being like, oh, this is a way for me to explore some of the absurdities, perhaps, or you know, the hypocrisies, uh, some of the difficulties of of that, you know, and you know. In, in some ways, very kind of heavy-handed and symbolic, and in other ways, you know, also just very less so. I should say maybe less so. Um, you know, there's there's also the point you brought up about the, the, the blind woman. and I think they mentioned both parents are legally blind. I think the father is, he's he can just barely see. I could be wrong. He's got those really thick glasses, and I think that's like a part of the reason he's unemployed. To me, that uh, that goes back to... The I don't know the psychology um, that we've already you know made clear is is really uh, makes me uncomfortable to think about that like not only is there this language barrier not only are they obviously a a poorer family than the other people living around them you know they can't see um, and so their fear of the outside due to what religious or cultural experiences. And then, you know, this this alienating disability that they um, are so that that puts them in this position of so much fear um, and so resistant to getting out there. And I think, Ryan, this is I think what you're getting at here, right, which is this question of, you know, where the ethical component kind of comes in here of Makhbalbaf just sort of looking at this and going, Oh, this is perfect, <laughs> you know. Right. And like, yeah. look at—I'm going to be able to craft a, a, a festival award-winning film out of this because you couldn't make this stuff up. It's too perfect. And maybe if I just, you know, add a nice shot here and there, and you know, frame it like this, and and go here, like I have this great metaphor, you know, and it's it's so perfect. Uh, it's, it's, it, it can't be passed up this again. We use the word opportunistic earlier and I don't want to like just completely go down that path, you know, and make it seem very nefarious. Cause I don't, I don't think it is. I think it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful story in its own way, but I do see from the standpoint that you brought up, you know, that it's, it's at times, you know, I think you really can see, uh, Makhmobov's gears like turning throughout this production of, of, you know, going, 
yeah, now I'll get them out and, and I'll put them over here and, and we'll, we'll have them interact with these people and I'll just film it and we'll see how it goes, you know? So you alluded to this earlier, right? Where you said you had some limited, I think this is where now we should maybe talk about where they went after this. Like, do you know of, of where these women wound up? Anything that you found out about their, their life after this production? Yeah. So I did, I did find a little bit, and I think it, it relates back to a point, too, I wanted to mention with Times Square. And there's a moment in Times Square when they're trying to come up with some messaging around the daughters, or around the daughter, Pamela. Um, and this is, like, back at the commissioner's office where they're working on developing the, you know, the, the cleanup Times Square, you know, find the heart of the city, that sort of campaign. And there's a woman, there's, like, a staffer, of the commissioner, Pamela's father, who in like reading the open letter, like the community letter that they're going to put out, she mentions like, I don't like coming down so heavy on this mental illness jargon. Because that's something they're attributed with throughout the film, the two women in Times Square, that they're mentally ill, that there's something wrong with them. And that was the biggest question mark for me with the apple and the impetus for it. Because when you go back and you read some of the interviews with Samira, and again, I still think her intentions were good, but I was surprised at some of the language that was used. And I think that today, a lot of language is very different in terms of mental illness. Um, there are many words now that are extremely derogatory that maybe were less so in the late 90s. I know it's like sort of recent history, but even reading the critical commentary on the films, like very even people like Jay Hoberman were calling these two little girls retarded. You know, and and that is something that Samira Makhmabov also said, that they were like a little bit like that as if they had intellectual disabilities. And while I was watching, that was the thing that to me, I was like, I don't think they do. Like, I think you're missing the point here, because this is something that Molly deals with all the time. My wife, Molly, is a school psychologist, and she is constantly assessing whether children have intellectual disabilities or not, whether they need to be in special education, what type of learning plans they need. And it's so often that people say, like, these kids have autism. This kid, like, has an intellectual disability. And she's like, well, you have to, like, consider their lives here. Like, this child hasn't been socialized. This child mm -hmm. hasn't been taught how to read. It's not that they inherently aren't able to do it and have an intellectual disability in certain cases, but that they just haven't had the environment in which were that is conducive to something like that. Mm -hmm. This is a long-winded way of answering your question of where these girls are now, because I think that the lives they led after this film gives evidence to that, that these two girls didn't necessarily have intellectual disabilities. They just obviously weren't socialized. They weren't receiving an education. They were trapped inside a home because after this film, they did receive an education. One of them went on to be an engineer. There's very limited information, but you know, at one point, uh, Zara, she wanted to be a filmmaker. There's like moments I found like a cute little behind the scenes thing of like a year or two later where she's with Samira and Samira was like still involved with their lives. The girls did end up living with a new family very soon after the film. Um, and yeah, she, you know, she's like, oh, I want to make movies. I want to do what you do, like that sort of thing. And mm -hmm. <laughs> obviously... 
again, the footage I watched was a little questionable. They were like directing the kids in the interviews, and I wonder if like some of these lines uh, were fed to them. Back in ECAU territory. Exactly. Uh, what truly. about the silence? <laughs> right? Masume did get married. Uh, that's like the last bit of information I have. One of them did get married, was going to become an engineer. Like They were receiving education. The last thing I'll say, for what it's worth, is that the arrangement to get them outside... Like in the film, it's presented by the welfare worker. She's like, we need to let them go play. The only reason that was able to happen was because of the movie. It was an arrangement Samira made with the parents. It's like, okay, the welfare worker wants them to go and experience the world on their own. So she convinced the father, like, well, we'll follow them with a cameras. Like, we'll be with them. They won't be alone. Right. They're not going to be like completely, you know, in a world of men right. that might confront them. Like, so the film was a tool in that sense of social development here. Whether it needed to be brought to the attention of the public eye, that's another question. But mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, and, and to that point that you made about, you know, um, perceived intellectual disabilities versus, you know, a lack of socialization with these girls. I, I think that you do, when they're out there in the world, you, you do start to see that, that it is about socialization. And I think there's one scene that captures it quite well, you know, and that's when the, the two girls uh, sort of go to a park and there's there's two other girls playing hopscotch and they they start to interact with those two young girls and they want to like join in and play and at first you know they're like go ahead play hopscotch and and you know understandably so she really mucks it up doesn't do a good job yeah. of hopscotch and the girls are like okay let's try to explain it to them and they're being really patient with them And then, you know, one of the girls, you know, takes her apple and just like bonks one of the others on the head with the apple. And the girl's like, what the fuck? Like, don't do that, you know? And she she's kind of like, hey, come on. Like, I don't know if I want to play with these girls. She's bonking me on the head with an apple, you know? And she does it again. And the girl gets kind of upset and she starts to cry, you know? And she's like, this is not fun for me. Like, you know, you, you don't do that. And the girl's stop you know they 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 kind of learn and they they kind of grow in that interaction of socialization of being like oh okay she doesn't like that i shouldn't do that like that's that's not something you do to somebody you don't know very well you know just hit them on the head with your apple you know so so i think you you start to see that you know through their journey and them starting to grasp at at language a little bit more and and express themselves um, in a more socially, I guess, I, I don't want to say the word acceptable, but a, a, a bit more of just sort of like a socially comfortable way. Yeah, I was going to bring up the same scene. Um, I, but even as that sequence goes on and develops and they go to seek out the watch seller, the way we see the sisters interact with one another, these two pairs of sisters physically, to me, I think, again, goes back to this this question Ryan brings up about what, you know, what what is the cause for how these, these two young girls are? Because there seems to be something so innately um, organic about how they're just, you know, one of the new girls grabs the other girl's hand and they're just walking hand in hand and the way that they're interacting with one another has this level of comfort that maybe you know was was that there's stuff that we see off camera obviously but 
to me, at least that's where my mind was. I was thinking about that. Yeah, I mean, even thinking about that, like their instincts there, when they steal the ice cream from the boy and it gets resolved through the help of an adult, after they get the ice cream, they give him the mirror and the comb as like a, a, a present. Like right. they inherently understand reciprocity. They are, you know, reaching out to him and that there's like there's goodness there. It's just their methods of communication. And I mean, Alex, maybe you could, I don't know if you have any ideas on this, but it made me think about the troubles that Nikki has to deal with in Times Square, uh, just especially thinking about the little bits of backstory we get for Nikki and like past friendships slash loves she had. This was, this all got like a bit like <laughs> garbled for me. Like I, I was a little confused by some of the elements of her backstory, but there is something there too about her struggling. You could maybe even say with her own love languages or just like people attributing her as having these issues, but she is trying to reach out even if it could be through violence a lot of violence (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah i mean i think it gets jumbled for you because the movie jumbles it um because you know there are supposed to be scenes there elaborating that are, are just not there but yeah so there is like this this uh implication and and even some lines of dialogue that more explicitly state that she is on the run for possible manslaughter charges, having had some involvement yeah. with... What the fuck? She's like, wanted yeah, for murder. <laughs> right. I, yeah, I was just confused. I didn't know, like, what she did. That, like, didn't get clarified for it, me. Well, it was offhanded, and they never really elaborate other than her possible involvement with the death of her friend, um, who she claims, you know, died having an overdose. And But I, I, I believe it's stated in the movie that she died drowning. Um, and so there's really not a lot of details left in the movie to to go into depth about that other than how Nikki's character talks to Pamela about how this is the first relationship she's had since that friendship that has meant something to her. And towards the end of the movie, there is uh, this this kind of as as again, this kind of uh, latent lesbian overtone that was removed from the film or was softened in the final edit of the film kind of comes to a climax there is this essentially spontaneous outburst of aggression from nikki um where perhaps uh, to me i don't i don't really find a clear explanation in the movie you know narratively as to why she blows up when she does other than she is either getting afraid of getting too close to this person, um, their relationship is developing, or becoming aware that that Pamela, who has, you know, had this experience of getting out of her shell and finding a newfound sense of purpose, is now maybe realizing that she is still more suited to the straight world that she came from. And and we do really see a, a return to that in her character by the end of the movie. So maybe it's that a subconscious in a subconscious way, but that's there. That that really that really comes through when uh, you know as the Sleaze Sisters' popularity takes off, uh, Nikki decides you know we got to kick things up a notch here, and they start just. Uh, the the extended sequence of of TV bombing where they're going onto roofs of buildings in New York and just throwing television sets onto the sidewalk mere inches at times 
uh, a, you know, like missing pedestrians who are walking down the street. Banality, boredom, television. But a new iconoclast has come to save us. It's the Sleaze Sisters. It's Nikki and Pamela. Go to it, girls. And that's really where Pam starts to go like, I think this is getting a little extreme. We're going to kill somebody up here, you know? I think that's the moment for me in the film where, yeah, uh, Pam's kind of like, all right, you know, we've had our fun, but we're going to fucking kill somebody sooner or later up here. You know, and Nikki's like, no, we got to, we got to do more. We got to use more TVs. We got to do a whole big TV bombing campaign across the city, you know? So yeah, I think that's like the <laughs> moment for me also where I, again, I really was starting to go like, all right, where are the parents? Let's get the parents <laughs> out here. You know, like, I mean, this movie really, again, like I said, Sherman, you got, you got major props from me for being, you know, for, for, you know, unbeknownst to you bringing one of the, the, the most no parents, no rules movies I've ever seen, you know, they're almost killing people with television sets. Uh, at a certain point, Nikki's like, I got an idea. We're going to go down to the radio station. We'll bring the backup band, the Blondells and our knives, and we'll take the whole place over, you know, like threatening to take hostages. I mean, uh, they, 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 they attempt to like, like mug some guy at some point, which is kind of humorous. I, I, I started to refer to like their whole, like their whole antics together. I kept calling it raggedy and Joker. Like that's what it, <laughs> this movie felt like to me. It was like raggedy and Joker. Cause they're wearing like, you know, like patchwork quilt, like blankets and wigs. And they, they just look like ragamuffin, like, you know, anarchists. And, and they are, wreaking havoc across the city. And, and this film was also to me, a, a whether intentional or not, a, a great showcase for the ineptitude of the New York city police department, because supposedly there are posters of them everywhere. There is a citywide dragnet and there are multiple scenes where these girls, you know, dressed up like, like the, you know, like punk rock boxcar children, uh, are just strolling past New York city police officers who probably have been instructed by the mayor's office directly to find them and bring their reign of, of terror to an end. And they're just doing whatever the fuck they want. Nobody can find them. And yet at multiple times they're at the radio station. Like this dad can't hire a private investigator to be like, just stake out the goddamn radio station and drag this girl away. Like what the hell is going on here? And on top of that, at a certain point, they're allowed to go on the radio and just sing a song with a bunch <laughs> of slurs. I mean, yeah, Oh my God. That sequence yeah. really was like, I, the, honestly, I just was like enough bring him down. Let's end this, you know, <laughs> take the kill shot, far. take the kill shot. Yeah. Like, <laughs> they do need to be institutionalized. Yeah. yeah, that yeah lock them up. It was crazy. <laughs> I can't believe that they were tossing those TVs, like so many TVs out of windows and they see them like nearly colliding with so many people. That was crazy. But it, it also like funny enough, kind of reminded me like this idea of throwing TVs out of windows as a uh, burgeoning romance developing. Uh, that was the way I had invited over, um, this girl I very, very briefly dated in high school was because I knew that she liked 
the room and I had like an old tube TV that I was getting rid of because I had like bought a new monitor and I was like you want to come over and like we can fucking we can throw this TV out of my window like onto the driveway <laughs> yes and we did <laughs> and okay I was like we could be like the room we could like toss the TV out the window um, and then you could have been like we could have been like the girls in Times Square you know exactly I know yeah had I had I only seen it at the time and that was uh, just like thinking about that was crazy because then she showed me Herschel Gordon Lewis's 2000 Maniacs like that she brought it over to show to me and it was like during the climax when it's revealed the twist of the movie she like grabbed my head and kissed me and that was my first kiss was like I was grabbed during a Herschel Gordon Lewis movie this sounds like this sounds more like John Waters origin story than than a a (laughs) date Ryan Saunders origin story yeah I guess I guess so (laughs) yeah Uh, yeah. That fling didn't last too long, but it was fun. <laughs> like Nikki and Pam's, you know? Like, like it, Nikki and Pam's, It, it yeah. burned hot. You know, and again, I, I guess that's the thing, you know? Because, like, for me, I'd never heard of this movie, and, and I can see why, you know, especially for a lot of uh, people within, you know, the punk rock community, and in particular, like, the, 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 the more, like, feminist uh you know, wing of, of the, the punk rock community. This movie, uh, is kind of a cult classic because there really are, you know, in the spirit of the, the, the sort of like punk rock era of the late seventies and early eighties, like a lot of like moments of like, you know, just punk bliss. Yeah. Smashing TVs and, 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 you know, creep out the straights and, you know, like, let's just go and, and, and fuck shit up and, and fuck the cops and, and we're going to live our own life. Parents suck. You know, like there are a lot of those moments, but again, you know, what, what really makes this movie fucking fall apart on a certain level for me is just like everything in between that, you know, like if it's just a string of these kind of moments of them acting up, like it's wild. Sometimes it's shocking. Sometimes it's funny. Sometimes it's like, Whoa, but, but yeah, like all the stuff with the men around them, you know, it's like there needed to be like a man in here, like their age, all the men spiraling around them, swirling around them, trying to like use them, manipulate them, guide them, lead them are all like, at least 30 years older than them, you know? And like, there's this moment where like Tim Curry is like, like I'm going to go, I guess, hang out with Pam. Cause I think she's having a hard time. You know, Nikki and her seem to be on the outs and he goes to their, their, you know, raggedy and Joker headquarters. <laughs> uh, he goes to the warehouse to hang out with Pam, the 13 year old who he knows is 13. And he brings a bottle of vodka and he's like, hey, I've got some vodka. You want to hang out? And he just starts like drinking vodka with a 13-year-old. And then they're like laying on, on a bed together, having a heart-to-heart over glasses of just straight vodka. And I was like, no. I, I For a second, I was like, if this is going where I think it's going, where it feels like it's going, like I, I really started to get uncomfortable. Uh, I mean, that was fucking just so twisted and weird to me. I'm sorry. It's so symptomatic of like producers interfering that they thought like that was a scene worth preserving as opposed to like whatever queer romance was being developed in the initial version of the film. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There was stuff that was cut and stuff that was reshot. There was stuff that was shot by the second unit after Moyle left, specifically like all of the 
the teeny boppers getting ready for the concert at the end, like that crazy scene where like the girls were all the random girls were dressing up in garbage bags and like, you know, the 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 upper class Manhattanite parents were like, Hillary, you're going out in that. Um, (laughs) That was all that was all like, you know, studio hack thrown in or record company hack stuff that was thrown in. But yeah, so going back to that, you know, creepy Tim Curry scene, certainly not wholesome. You know, it it loses. You mean not as wholesome as the the daddy daughter (laughs) dance at the strip club? That I will argue is still a wholesome scene, but. Nevertheless, Nikki's character is the one who, after her violent outburst, you know, destroying their 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 Joker hideout, she calls Tim Curry and invites him over. Whatever layers were removed that we are not privy to, I believe, you know, or at least I think perhaps there being her own insecurities about her sexuality in relation to this violent outburst that she has. I don't know, but there to me, it's still there. If you, you can read it. And I think because in spite of them cutting out some of the explicit scenes, uh, there are other scenes that they, they had to leave in for continuity's sake. You know, one of them being when, when Nikki uh, gets drunk and like storms the radio station and is like, put me on the air. And she specifically is trying to address Pam. Something I want to say, put me on the radio, live, right now. And you watch it. Well, maybe you ought to tell me what you want to say first. You fucking little straight, I'll pulverize you. She specifically is trying to address Pam, and it's basically like her saying, "Like, look, I'm I know I'm fucked up, but but I love you, and and I I have all these fucked up emotions, and like you can't leave me. I'll 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 clean up my act. I'll I'll stop trying to kill people with television sets. <laughs> like, just if you'll just be with me, you know, and I can be good, and or I can be." you know, something better for you. Like that is to me, like directly related to this excised element of the film. And I still read it as, you know, at at least from Nikki's character's perspective, like her being romantically in love with Pam. um, But of course, perhaps the way it was now shaped that it's like an unrequited love. So I think it's still there, you know, but then, yeah, it's all the, the bow is that really just, again, when you think about punk rock, like that ending, that concert scene, the bad baby concert, uh, is like the least punk rock thing I've ever fucking yeah. seen. Yeah. You know? It's a great, aside from like girls, you know, wearing garbage bags, uh, yeah, it's like they were trying to wrap it up in a shiny bow when they should have been wrapping it up in a dirty sock. Yeah, yeah, you know, like, Nikki should have fucking drowned in the East River or whatever, you know? <laughs> sure, yeah. Seriously, I mean, like... So, but getting into the ending, yeah, I think it's egregious, and I think it's, exa- it's, it's like, to me, it's such a farce, be- like, I can't, you know, I, it's so emblematic of, of something being taken away by a project's original creators, because what the concert at the end becomes represents to me almost what they're saying Times Square shouldn't be like, you know, like the bringing of this illegal concert that is, is broadcast over. I, 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 I think, uh, Pamela calls in like through her dad's office phone, like all of his 
person or professional contacts to get the word out that this concert's happening. So it like it doesn't go out on Johnny LaGuardia's show. It goes out everywhere else. Um, and then when it comes down to it, all, the people coming in are not the people, you know, the people celebrating this are not the people who live or, or exist in Times Square. No. It's all of these people. It's all of these young girls, these teeny boppers coming in from Manhattan or even the suburbs, dressing up, wearing the costume of this punk aesthetic. And you can even see, like, glimpses of what Times Square is now or will become soon when, like, the denizens of Times Square, like, you know, the pimps and the junkies who we've seen in the background throughout are now, like, selling T-shirts and they're they're commodifying their own environment. Um, so, yeah, that's the biggest joke of all. Um, yeah, and you know what else is really fucked up? Because I had to do some research on it, but... The way in which, like, basically, like, Nikki's entire journey in this film, like, mirrored the actress's journey in real life on a certain level. Like, I don't know if either of you read about this, but, like... After this movie, like this movie was going to be like, you know, th- these twisted producers, you know, the the Tim Curry like characters that were hovering around this film, the vampires, you know, the Times Square, you know, Dracula's. Uh, they they were like looking at her, Robin Johnson, and thinking like she's going to be a big star, and like we can get her recording contracts. And I guess it was one record label that like signed her to an exclusive deal. It was RSO, it was like, the the Robert Stiegwood Org, the the company that produced this movie. Yeah, right. And they and they were like, we're going to manage your career, and you can only be in projects that we approved. And then apparently none of those fucking projects came to fruition and she wound up as like a fucking waitress or some shit like that. Isn't no, that she, happened? she like, Well, for a while then, um, but yeah, just bit roles in Miami Vice, After Hours, and a soap opera throughout the 80s and then essentially quit acting. She became a traffic reporter for an L.A. radio station um, and did <laughs> oh like, did theater on the side. Dude. Yeah, did local community theater. Cut to Tim Curry looking through his telescope. It's all coming together. Right. Yeah. It's it's such bullshit. In one respect, Alex, I'm glad you ended up picking this because one of the threads on a lot of recent episodes of The Gauntlet have been our appreciation of the imperfect object, of the films that were compromised, but beauty remains and we still value. And this is a film that I think actually challenged my assessment of that sort of things this movie bummed me out yes because it's an imperfect object like this is one where i actually think the greatness is mostly gone and i and and knowing that it exists is frustrating i mean if this film had retained more clearly that queer romance had lost a lot of this filler had not been designed specifically with a double album in mind to just like extend the runtime even further i think this would have been like a film that really would have stood the test of time that people would cherish and love and i think there is still many things to love about it but it does actually upset me how much this film was torn to pieces yeah yeah, I totally agree. Um, and you know who else agrees? Roger Ebert. Uh, would love <laughs> to read a little. Speaking of punk rock. Yeah. <laughs> Our very own secret agent. Um, 
from his piece on the movie, Times Square rarely comes together into anything more than a good idea that fails. But there are times when it seems on the brink of wonderful things. Of all the bad movies I've seen recently, this is the one that projects the real sense of a missed opportunity, of potential achievement gone wrong. I agree with Roger on this one. I give him credit there. (laughs) For once. Well, damn, I cannot believe on the episode No Parents, No Rules, you guys want to wrap it up with suddenly you two uh, genuflecting to Roger Ebert, (laughs) the the biggest boomer dad in the history of American film. Listen, as much as we like to rag Special Agent Ebert, you know, he he played an important role in my life. I I really admired the guy, and he was the accessible film critic that, like, got me into thinking about movies, so... And I think he's so funny, and I love his show. I don't want people to think I dislike Roger Ebert. I just think, like, (laughs) critically, I really struggle with the way he thinks about movies sometimes now, uh, as I've grown older and thought about them in a little bit of a different way. But, but yeah, Andy, you know, it it has been... uh, Subverting the no parents, no rules in in a bit more ways than one wasn't entirely expected i'm sorry if this wasn't the party you were hoping for but i mean i certainly had a good time (laughs) and but yeah having the apple and Times square next to each other i was surprised how much they communicated uh and i guess that's just the gauntlet touch i i'm always surprised that you take two films and they do you think about them in a certain light there's a lot that can be gleaned from it but yeah you know even if we bungled this uh a little bit um you know steer us on the right path uh, give us some rules what are some no parents no rules films that uh that you love yeah um i mean yeah to to address your your you know your denouement to this episode your conclusion ryan yeah this was not what i was expecting at all uh but you know that's that's on me uh, because I didn't give you both enough rules. <laughs> I should have I should have been more stern with you. You know, I failed you two, uh, you impressionable young men, and I've learned in the future there's going to be some rules, and we're going to be a little bit more strict around here with with our picks and and making the topics clear and and what daddy wants because you both were a little bit of a disappointment this week. You know, so. You're grounded, <laughs> both of you. Next time we have Alex on the pod, we're gonna do no parents, no rules too, and we're gonna we're gonna make good for you. Jeez. Andy. I don't know. I think it's appropriate. Yeah, you guys are gonna press way too hard. You know, you're gonna bring me like a par- American Pie four. You know, let's party. It's like I'm gonna be pissed off for a different reason. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, the meta way of looking at this is Alex and I are the. That the children with no rules and yeah, we, we ran amok to our parents. That's but. exactly what happened. You know, you hit me on the head with a fucking TV uh, uh, or an apple. I smacked yeah. you. You hit me with an apple to get my attention. Then I looked up and then a fucking TV dropped by, you know, <laughs> Raggedy Ann and Sally <laughs> fucking smashed me in the head. So thanks, you know. And Tim Curry sipped vodka with a 13 year old just watching, going, it's all coming together. We got to listen to the Ramones though, and that's never a loss. Yeah, no, 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 for sure. Um, so anyway, yeah, I guess. You know, for me, um, uh, obviously, you know, there's a guilty pleasure part of me that loves movies like House Party. You know, I think that's what I sort of envisioned when I came up with this topic. But uh, there's a, a much lesser known no parents, no rules pick I'd like to offer the viewers 
today. Uh, and that's a movie from the late 60s during the, the big like countercultural craze in Hollywood. Uh, a very almost forgotten cult film today from 1968 called Wild in the Streets, directed by Barry Shear. And that is a, uh, for those who've never heard of it or seen it, like I cannot recommend this movie enough. It is, it is bonkers. It's a, it's a weird late sixties, hippie countercultural satire about politics in America. And the basic premise is through a very sort of like, complex set of maneuvers like the young people take over America and they pass laws to increasingly or I guess I should say let me try that again increasingly lower the voting age I guess decrease I'm trying to think of like anyway they keep lowering the voting age in America uh you know to 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 get younger and younger people involved and I think at a certain point like they make the voting age 14 so the youth then pass a series of laws that basically culminates in outlawing adults and at a certain point in the film anyone over the age of 35 gets taken to re-education camps it is as the title would suggest, America gone wild in the streets with youth as all the responsible adults are subsequently rounded up and taken to concentration camps. <laughs> it is like the most 1968 movie you could possibly imagine. Check out Wild in the Streets if you've never seen it. That movie's awesome. I if I had remembered that movie existed, <laughs> I would have picked it. <laughs> it was it is the perfect movie for this topic. Yeah, I had uh, I haven't thought about that movie in a long time. I took a sexual revolution in Hollywood class uh, at DePaul, and that film was used for the subject of the generation gap. And um, yeah, Shelley Winters is in it. That movie's Ooh. gonzo, yeah, crazy movie. rocks. But instead. You two brought me these movies. So, <laughs> you know, to our listeners, don't watch these movies. Go watch Wild in the Streets. That's what hey. I would say. <laughs> I don't know. I still think these films are worth checking out. Um, but you know, God damn it, I I had a good time. I, it's been great having you back on, Alex. Good uh, to be. I hope Thank you. you had fun. Sorry to bonk you on the head with an apple, <laughs> but you know, it's quite all right. Uh, you know. If there's anything I've missed, it's abuse from both of you. So thanks for having me. <laughs> well, happy to happy to help out anytime you need it. So, uh, folks, uh, you know, uh, Eric is still on assignment. And boy, we will look forward to him getting back and filling us in all on his international adventures. But next week, we... Uh, I should say, Ryan and I will be back in the studio together uh, for a little topic we'd like to call just the two of us. So stay tuned next week to The Gauntlet uh, for Ryan and I and next week's topic, just the two of us. And you can watch me drive Andy insane with how many times I reference the Beatles song, two of us knowing how much he dislikes the Beatles and how much I love that song. I cannot <laughs> wait for Marsh to get back. <laughs> he misses daddy. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to do the Marsh thing. Uh... As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at 
gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. Goodbye. That's all I want to say. I ain't sure what it is yet. Just stick around. I never said the stuff I should. I was checking to tell you. I never thought I could. Find me. Help me. Save me. Can you hear me? Can you feel me out there? Back me. I'm calling you back me.